It's the universally recognized symbol of McDonald's. Well, my, my children, when they were little, they could spot the golden arches from about 10 miles away. The so-called Happy Meal, which, um, you know, they, loved, they lived for the little plastic toy that would be forgotten within two days. So, yeah, the golden arches, they're onto a genius thing, a macca. Mackers, they just get you in there to, to buy their stuff. What's the universally recognized symbol of Christianity? Surprisingly, the answer is the cross. Now think about this for a moment. It might have been a manger to remind us of his birth. It might have been an empty tomb to remind us of his resurrection. It might have been a, a book, perhaps, to remind us of his teaching. It might have been a lamp to, simplify, uh, you know, to, to remind us of a, of a brilliant life lived in an otherwise dark world. But no, the answer is a cross to remind us of his death. Now, isn't that strange? No other religion celebrates the death of its founder. But Christians place such a focus on the cross that people will write books like this. It's actually quite readable, but look, there's a lot to read, isn't there? It was the most horrendous form of execution devised and utilized by the Romans under the Roman Empire just to, to be used on the worst sort of criminal and just to remind everybody who was in charge and what would happen if you stepped out of line. It was a symbol of torture and death. And at the top of this uh, the spire of this church building, as on many churches, there is a cross. Now think about that. Would you walk into a building where on top of the building there was a symbol of a hangman's noose or a guillotine? It hardly seems a very friendly way to welcome people. Why is the cross the universal symbol? Because the events of the cross of Christ and its significance is the most significant event in human history. As you've heard today, it is the source of our praise and our worship when you understand what the cross is really all about. And over the next uh, couple of Sundays, we're going to read one of the eyewitness accounts, Matthew's account in his gospel, and explore something of the meaning and the depth of, of what this crucifixion of Jesus was all about. And so please open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. If you have a church Bible, you'll find it on page 999. Matthew 27, we're going to be, begin reading at verse 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. 
After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is God's word. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to work through this account. Matthew wants us to see who it is that is on the cross. And in this first part, I want us to see that he's portraying that this is the Messiah on the cross. Next week, we'll think about how this is the Son of God. This is God in human flesh on the cross. But for this part of these verses, we'll think about how this is the Messiah. Now, the deep significance of some events are not actually obvious to those who witness them. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo on the 28th of June, 1914. It started a chain of events that led to the First World War that saw the premature deaths of 16 million people. The mobilization of troops, especially from America, uh, probably spread the deadly so-called Spanish influenza pandemic that caused a further minimum of 50 million premature deaths worldwide. And yet probably none of those terrible consequences were foreseen by the 19-year-old assassin, Gavrilo Princip, who pulled the trigger. He had no idea what he had just unleashed. And the brutal killing of Jesus was clearly not understood by those directly involved. But the Bible reveals how his death still has saving significance for us today. This is not obvious to many people's eyes. So let's ask God's help as we come to his word. Let's just briefly pray. Father, we know that the message of the cross is foolishness to a world that is perishing. 
but to those who believe it is the power of God. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would grant us sight to see the truth that is here and faith to trust Jesus as our Savior and King. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. At the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he, in the very first verse, starts his account with the ancestry of Jesus. This is the genealogy of, of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew wants us to know right from the beginning that Jesus came in fulfillment of God's plan in the history of Israel. Descended from Abraham, the patriarch of the nation, from the royal lineage of King David, which is very significant. For David was the great king of Israel who received special promises from God that from his descendants would come another king, the Messiah, who would rescue his people and would gather them under his rule in an everlasting kingdom. But the tragedy of this eyewitness account of the life of Jesus is that when the promised Messiah did actually turn up in human history, he was rejected by those he came to save. If there's one word that hangs over this scene, it is the word rejection. Crucifixion, according to the words of Cicero, the first century Roman statesman and lawyer and philosopher, was the most cruel and horrifying punishment. It was intended to be an agonizing and humiliating way to kill a person. The feet would be nailed to the upright and the arms would be either nailed or tied to a beam. And the victim was often made to carry the crossbeam to the place of execution. Now we could spend time describing this terrible form of execution, but I find it interesting that Matthew does not dwell on the physical suffering, as terrible as this would be. He simply says in verse 35, when they had crucified him. Perhaps in the first century, the horror of crucifixion was such that that was all that was needed to be said. When they had crucified him. What is the focus of Matthew's account here? It's not so much the physical suffering, but it is the total mockery and rejection of Jesus and his claim to be the Messiah. Uh, the soldiers, Pilate, the religious leaders, they all uh, ironically and mockingly call him the king of the Jews. Look at the soldiers in verse 29. Having fulfilled the order to whip Jesus, they decide to have some sport, put a scarlet robe on him, jam a crown of thorns on his head, uh, give him a scepter, let's salute the king of the Jews. What fun. I don't know whether you've ever been spat at. I remember as a, a, a young boy, I went into a park, which I didn't normally go to, and a bunch of lads took an exception to this new guy. Five or six of them just came up to me. They gathered around me, and they didn't say a word. They just all started spitting at me, trying to spit in my face. I got the message, and I ran away. And that was the least of the forms of rejection here, wasn't it? Jesus stood there, his back bleeding from the scourging. He could not run as they spat and mocked. 
falling on their knees in mock homage, whacking his head with the, uh, the stick where they placed the crown of thorns. And then they took him out and crucified him like a criminal. Look at verse 37. Pilate's last joke is the written charge placed above the head of Jesus on the cross. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Again, here is the power and might of Rome showing who's in charge. And then in verses 38, we have uh, following the, the, the mockery of those around the cross. Now consider this. Consider the darkness of the human heart. Um, it's fully on display here. Here is a naked man bleeding, painfully dying a public death. And uh, look how people respond. Verse 39, those who passed by hurled their insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down now from the cross if you are the Son of God. And all the religious leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they gloated over their defeat of Jesus. They recognized that he had done much that was good. He saved others. They didn't doubt that, that the claims of some miracles of healings of the evident compassion of Jesus, the comfort he provided. That's kind of acknowledged in that jibe. But still, they counted him worthy of death and mockery. He saved others, but he could not can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Jesus is the rejected Messiah. It's a horrific scene, isn't it? We would like to, to close our eyes and pretend that humanity does not behave like this. In fact, a, a lot of our education is trying to basically tell us that everyone is basically good and nice and kind. But this scene around the cross reveals the truth of our human condition. There is real darkness in the human soul. We would like to think that we would not behave in that way. And yet, how many times have we in our lives chosen to say words that we know will hurt the person that we're speaking to? We calculate and choose the exact words that will just stick the boot in. And we are capable of doing that to those that we say we love the most. What darkness is in our hearts? One of the real problems of social media is that people feel very free and able to uh, send comments to politicians and public figures that are just horrific, threatening sexual and violent attacks on our politicians. And some people actually are willing to take those thoughts from the, um, the virtual world into the real world, as we saw in the horror of the mass shooting that took place in the mosque in New Zealand. And as you hear the reports of some of the utter brutality of what happened 
when ISIS were in charge of a territory. We would like to think we're not like this. But looking at the cross of Christ reveals how ugly our sinful hearts can be. But the real horror here is not so much man's inhumanity to man, but the cross shows our rejection of God. It's clear by this count, as you've read through Matthew's gospel, that this is the Son of God. This is God come in human flesh. And yet, how do we respond? Well, we pin him to a cross to die. You can't get a more powerful way of saying to God, we don't want you, God. We don't want your king to rule over us. But what's extraordinary about this account of the crucifixion of Jesus and the mockery of Jesus is that it both shows that he is the rejected king, but in a wonderful way, it also proves that he is actually the genuine king and the king who has come to save those who are rejecting him. You see, this is not just a rejected person, but this is the savior. Every word and action of the soldiers, every word and action of the crowds, every word and action of the leaders which they intended to show that Jesus was not the king, actually confirmed that he is. Unwittingly, all those who oppose Jesus are fulfilling their Hebrew scriptures. Words written hundreds of years before that predicted that this is what would happen to God's promised king. So keep your finger in Matthew 27 and turn back to Psalm 22, which was read to us earlier on page 554 in the church Bibles. This is a psalm written by David, King David. This was written a thousand years before the events of the crucifixion of Jesus. Look at verse 6. Consider how these words prophesy, predict what would happen to a Messiah King. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. A thousand years before Jesus, King David describes suffering as the Messiah. A suffering that actually you never see in his own lifetime. These words don't really get fulfilled in the lifetime of King David. At least not in a physical way, perhaps in more metaphorical ways. And yet they predict and prophesy the actual events that took place in the death of Messiah Jesus scorned and despised, mocked of his claim to a unique relationship with God. The experience of crucifixion described long before, thirsting, bones out of joint, the piercing of hands and feet, the public humiliation of nakedness as people gambled for his clothing. It was all 
predicted. It was all part of God's plan by which, through such rejection, he would save rebels and sinners like you, like me. You see, all those events, if you turn back to Matthew 27, are ironically true. The soldiers sneer. The inscription above the cross. He was indeed the king of the Jews. I mean, as you consider this scene, what do you see at the cross of Christ? What do you make of it? You'll never understand the cross of Christ until you understand the ugliness of your own sin. As you look at the cross. But there's more to see than this. We've looked at some of the responses around the cross, but consider the person on the cross. What is Jesus, the Messiah King, doing, hanging on a cross? He'd committed no crime. His innocence was proved over and over again in the phony trials that preceded this. His life was perfect and blameless in every way. As we consider this question, why is he on, he on the cross? This is the, the source of why we sing songs like, the, Oh, the wonderful cross. When I survey the wondrous cross. This is why churches do put crosses on the top of their buildings. Because while mankind is rejecting God, God in Christ is saving mankind. Look at the irony again of, of verse 39. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Save yourself, they cry. But of course he chose not to save himself in order to make salvation possible for us. Jesus was dying in the place of sinners. It's not enough to look at the cross and see how terrible our sinful human hearts are, but we actually have to look at the cross and see our Savior there. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders could not see a crucified Messiah. They just could not put those two things together. And that's the reason why many Jewish people today do not accept Jesus as their Messiah. Verse 42, he saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down there from the cross and we will believe in him. But the truth is this, that the only way that he would be able to save us, the only way that we'd be able to see and believe would be through his sin-bearing death. He could not save himself and save us. And so he offered his own life as a substitute so that rebel sinners like you and me could be forgiven and saved. And so I wonder today, what is your response to the cross of Jesus, the Messiah King? Just before he died, the famous author, Sir Kingsley Amis, gave an interview reported in a British paper where he said this, one of Christianity's great advantages is that it offers an explanation for sin. I haven't got one. Christianity's got one enormous thing right, original sin. For one of the great benefits of organized religion is that you can be forgiven your sins, 
which must be a wonderful thing. The interviewer records that here Amos bowed his head and said, I mean, I carry my sins around with me. There's nobody to forgive them. How utterly tragic to carry our sins around with us. When we could come to God and receive his forgiveness by confessing our sin, by trusting Jesus as our Savior who secured our pardon if we trust him. He secures the pardon of all who trust him. My Christian friends here today, can I just say that um, I've been in enough pastoral counseling conversations to know that sometimes Christians can act like they've got nobody to forgive their sins. That, that, that I've seen Christians carrying around with them a sense of guilt and shame as if they needed to earn their salvation. And, and sadly, Christians can go looking in all the wrong places to distract themselves from those feelings of guilt and shame and end up enslaving themselves in all sorts of things that will harm them. How crazy to do that when all has been done for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. If we come to him, seek his pardon, receive his forgiveness, he's able to totally forgive all our sins. He did not save himself so that he could totally save you and me if we trust him. Have you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Have you done that? How do you know when someone has rightly understood and put their trust in Jesus? Well, let me suggest two things. By confession and cross-bearing. Confession. That I'm willing to confess about myself that I am a sinner who needs to be saved and about Jesus that he is my savior and king I think some people struggle to understand what Christianity is about because they just can't accept that they're a sinner they don't get it they don't see it and let me tell you, if you haven't got to that place where you've understood that you are a sinner before God, you really haven't understood Christianity and you never will. There is a need to come back to the events of the cross and realize the horror of this scene reveals the horror of our own sinful hearts. Yes, we are capable of doing and saying such things. But then it also is to confess and see that this rejected person is actually the king who came to save us. You know, when you've really been cut to the heart about how awful your sin is, I've got wonderful news. God has sent a savior. Confession. Cross-bearing. What I mean by cross-bearing, there's a sense in which to come to Christ and receive his forgiveness and receive him as king. I am turning away from my old life of saying I'm living selfishly for myself. That old life has to die. 
I, I, in a sense, put that old life on the cross. I carry the cross and I'm willing to identify myself with this rejected Jesus. There's a little cameo in verse 32. Did you notice him? Simon of Cyrene. We're told in Mark's gospel that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And all this detail makes me think that I wonder after this event whether actually Simon and, and his boys actually became followers of Jesus themselves. But um, physically and emotionally exhausted by Gethsemane, sleepless night, the, the trials, the torture, the scourging, Jesus is struggling to carry this cross beam and so Simon is commandeered by the Roman soldiers to carry the cross of Christ and I think there in that actual event we are reminded of what Jesus taught his disciples earlier in Matthew chapter 10 he says this whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Simon was forced to carry the cross. It is a choice for us. To receive the forgiveness, we must unite our lives with this rejected king who achieved our salvation. Knowing that he's fully paid for all my sins, that through his death on the cross, I am willing to identify with him, even if it means being rejected by the world. I'd rather have forgiveness and the joy of looking forward to what is ahead in his eternal kingdom. I'd rather have Christ than the praise and acceptance of a world that rejects Jesus. At the end, we're going to sing an old chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus. Sing it carefully and deliberately if you mean it. But perhaps there's people here and you've never made that first step. You've actually come to that place and you say, well, yeah, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm beginning to see that Jesus is the Savior, the, the King. And what you need to do today is you need to come to him and respond, make the first steps. Inside the bulletin, you'll see a, one of the pieces of paper you'll see a prayer of repentance. Why don't you pull that out and have a look at it? The sheet that on one side says chapel calendar, on the other side you'll see a prayer of repentance. Have a little look at that prayer and see whether you want to pray that prayer today. It's acknowledging that you, that you are guilty rebelling against him. That you need forgiveness. It's thanking God for sending his son to die for you who rose for you to give you new life. You're asking God to forgive you and help you to change from being a rebel to living with Jesus as your ruler. And perhaps there are people here today and you need to respond. You know it. You haven't done so. Well, today's the time. Today you could be right with God. I'm going to pray the prayer slowly and I'm going to leave some space so that you can echo that prayer in your own heart and mind. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you.
I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and help me to change from my rebellious ways. That I may live with Jesus as my ruler.